you have your Bibles this morning, Proverbs chapter 21. <clears throat> now, last week we started Proverbs chapter 21, and we looked at uh, one of the greatest principles, and yet one of the greatest promises in all the Bible. And if you remember last week, I explained to you the concept of, of how a principle and a promise are similar, but they're not always the same. And I told you that all all promises that you find in the Word of God, things that you apply to yourself, all promises in the Bible will be principles. But not all principles that you find in the Bible will be promises. Some of those are just hard-line doctrinal issues that uh, tell you the truth about something and not necessarily a promise. So I wanted you to get that down last week. Well, sometimes there's a little confusion about that. And how, last week, on how based on Proverbs 21, verses 1 and 2, and then we went to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, how that everything in life that comes our way will be used of God for His purpose. We talked about the great verse in Proverbs 21, verse uh, uh, 1 and 2, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And how that God uses and turns the situations in life the way He wants them to go. We talked about and built last week's message about two key concepts found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and then fortified in Proverbs chapter 21. First of all, we talked about the called. And then we talked about the called according to His purpose. We talked about how that God has a specific calling for each one of us if we're saved. And that calling is based on God's specific purpose. The job of a child of God, bar none, I don't care what we do, where we go, where we get into in life. The fundamental job of every born-again child of God, once they are saved, is to realize that God has given them a specific calling for a specific purpose. And as you build your life for God, and you get into the Word of God, and you get into this church, and you get discipled, and you grow, get discipleship too, you start to work through the issues in your life, you realize the calling that God has given you, and you'll better understand the purpose for that calling as God wants you to uh, to, to, to fulfill it into your life. A specific calling and a specific purpose. Then I walked you through the whole Old Testament and I showed you example after example how God did exactly that with the nation of Israel. We look at some of those situations that Israel were in and we look at they were very bad, they were terrible, uh, they were not very good. And yet I showed you how that even in those things God took those things and used those to make Israel what He wanted them to be. And uh, it's, the, it's, it's true in your life and my life. It was true in Israel's life as a nation. It'll be true in our life. God will take everything in our lives and He will use it to benefit us to accomplish His purpose if we understand that concept and realize our calling in life. And then I told you that the real tragedy of all this is the fact that we are called according to His purpose but unfortunately, most of God's people will never fulfill their real potential for the Lord. They'll go through their life. Some of them will make disastrous mistakes in their life. Some of them won't. Some of them will go through life uh, indifferent to the things of God. Some of them will go to church every Sunday. Some of them will read their Bible. Some of them will never read their Bible. But they'll come to the point in all of that that you have failed miserably in your Christian life if you get the end of your life and you do not understand and realize that God has chosen you for a purpose. And you've spent your life fulfilling that purpose. That's the job of the church. It's my job as a pastor. It's the job of those who are discipling you and working with you and helping you through the issues that you're going through. We're not doing it just to make you better. 
We're not doing it so we can make you uh, happy in life. We're doing it to get you through what you go through so you can understand that you've been chosen by God to fulfill His purpose because in that will only be the happiness that you're looking for. So we talked about all that last week. God using all things to get uh, us uh, to the point of seeing and understanding uh, our calling and our purpose in life. And of course, uh, um, today we find a total lack of understanding of it. You know, I was thinking this week, Going back to the beginning of the nation of Israel uh, when they were ready to cross over the land in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1 has always been a special chapter for me, uh, for my own personal life, because it's a place in the Bible where Israel was getting ready to cross over Jordan to go into the promised land. Most people think the promised land is heaven. You know, that when you cross over Jordan, you know, and you go to the promised land, that you're going to die and go to heaven. And of course, that's not what it represents in the Bible. Uh, the, the promised land represents exactly what the name suggests, the promised land. It's a place where it was totally hostile to the nation of Israel, but it was a place that God had chosen for them. And everything that God did with the nation of Israel through Genesis and the formulation and bringing them together and sending them down into Egypt was to get them to that point that they were going to cross over into the land that God had promised them. Way back in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 when God took Abraham out there on that starry night and showed him the stars of heaven. And he says, someday your seed is going to be like the stars of heaven. That was the promise that he gave to him. And that promised land was a land that God promised to them that they never really got it. They got into it, but boy, they had struggles with it. The only time they ever really had it successfully was the 40 years under Solomon and then it all fell apart uh, after that, as I showed you guys in Institute yesterday as we came through that portion of the Word of God. But in Joshua chapter 1, there's a great principle and a great promise given to the nation of Israel for the land. And the land was given to them, and it was a land that God wanted them to have, and it represents for you and for me the place where you and I get in our lives where we are successful, where we understand, where God is using us, where we're we're fulfilling God's purpose in our life based on keeping the promises. When you keep the promises of God in your life, there will not be one thing in this world that will stop you. When you don't keep the promises of the Word of God in your life, everything will stop you. As long as the nation of Israel kept the promises that God gave them, nobody could root them out of the land. But when they didn't keep those promises, everybody rooted them out of the land. It is just that simple. And in chapter 1, it's always amazed me that God is giving them instructions. And He's telling them, uh, this is the land. And He's going through the things about the land. They're not even in the land yet. They've not even crossed over yet. Yet God is speaking to them and telling them like they're already there. You know why that is? That's how sure the promises of God are. God can promise you today that if you do the promises, you'll live in the promised land. You'll have a life based on the promises, and nothing will ever stop you. But it takes courage to be able to do that. And in this chapter, chapter 1, going right along with what we're talking about uh, last week and going to talk about today, I, I find three aspects, and I use this as a, as, a, as a devotion all the time, you know, and it make a good, fairly good sermon. Uh, you add some stuff to it and put it together. But he's talking to Joshua and the nation of Israel, and he's telling them, about the land and what he wants them to do. And he's speaking to them in the tense that they're already there in his mind. You know the Bible says that if you're saved this morning, 
You're already seated in heavenly places in God's mind. When God looks around up in heaven, you know what he sees? He sees you and me in the bleachers. I don't know if they have bleachers, but you know what I'm talking about. He sees you and I in Christ Jesus. We are already seated in heavenly places. You know why? Because you're as good as in heaven. If you're saved this morning, you know you're still here. You're as good as in heaven this morning because the promises of God for your salvation are sure. And in the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament, as long as they obeyed what the Word of God said, they were in that promised land, but they had to keep the promises. And I've looked down through that chapter many, many times, and three things he tells them they have to do to keep the promised land. And it all deals with courage. And there's three things that you're going to have to do if you're going to be the called according to his purpose. Three things you're going to have to build your life around, and it's going to take courage because in the world that we live in, just like the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, there's a lot of things out there that were scary. When the spies went over, Early on, 40 years before this time, when the spies went over, they saw the giants, they saw all the, the enemies out there, and they come back and they were terrified. And it took them 40 years to finally get to the promised land. You know why some of you will never get to the promised land in this life? Because you're terrified of what's out there. You've never learned and understood that the terrifying things out there that God puts in life that so unnerves us, that so makes us afraid, that so disheartens us are the very things that God wants to build you with. God wants to make you with the things that the devil wants to break you. But we don't see that. And in verse 6 of Joshua chapter 1, he says, Boys, it's going to take courage to stay in the promised land, and it's going to take courage to believe to believe the Word of God. There's so much teaching out there, so much other material out there, it's going to take real courage for you as a Christian just to put all your eggs in one basket and believe that book is God's Word. Then he says in verse 7, it's going to take courage to obey the Word of God. It doesn't do you any good to have the Word of God, and we're going to talk about this today. It doesn't do you any good to have the Word of God if you don't obey it. And it takes courage to obey the Word of God because people are always pulling at you. Circumstances are always pulling at you. All your life, you're going to have somebody or something tugging on your arm not to do what's right. And it's going to take courage. Then in verse 9, he says, courage to rest in the Word of God. There has to come a time in your life when you understand what God's doing, that you rest in the Word of God in this tense. You rest in the Word of God to the fact that when the tough things come in life, you don't lose control, you don't fall apart, you don't have a bad day, because you have learned through the principles and the promise that you rest in that book. That courage. We're all control freaks to a certain degree. Some of us worse than others. We always like to control circumstances, some of us worse than others. We always want to fix things. We always want to do this. We always want to do that. I've seen parents lose their kids because they, they wouldn't allow the kids to go through the tough times that they had to go through. And they're always, I call them helicopter parents. They're always hovering over them, throwing them a life. And then they wonder why the kid never gets through it, why they continue to have problems. There comes a time in the bad things in life, whether it's with your family, your personal life, in your marriage, or wherever it may be, that you have to simply let God be God and you have to rest in the principles and follow it through. Most of God's people can't do that. And they wind up making a bigger mess. We talked about Hezekiah yesterday when we were coming through some of the kings. Hezekiah was a guy in the Old Testament and he, he told him, God told him, you're going to die. 
He couldn't be satisfied with that. So he starts to take charge and manipulate. He couldn't rest in the fact <clears throat> that his life that he had was all he was going to get. And actually, I would think to go home to be with God would be better than anything that was going on, but that's just me. So he whines and he complains. He takes charge and he asks God to give him a longer life. Oh, God, don't let me die. God gave him what he asked for. And I want to tell you something. You better be careful what you ask for with God. So God gave it to him. He gave him another 15 years. And we think, oh, what a great time. What a great thing. No, no. Within that 15 years, he had a son, and the son's name was Manasseh. And Manasseh was one of the wicked, vilest, dirtiest kings that Israel ever had. I'm telling you, when you can't rest in what God's doing, and you can't let God be God in the situation, it'll wind up being a lot worse, because your getting in control of it will only destroy it. It won't fix it. It won't fix it. And I'm telling you, this was the foundation that God laid in their life for their success and their calling and their purpose. And it will be the foundation in your life and my life, the principles of the Word of God that we live by, and will lead us to be, as we saw last week, based on our understanding and our purpose with God, faithful in the Word of God, fervent in the Word of God, and fearless in the Word of God, taking your stand as God's chosen to fulfill God's purpose, all based on our understanding of His calling for me and for you, realizing that if you're sitting here this morning and you're saved and you're not finding out what that calling is and fulfilling that purpose, you've missed it someplace along the line. Bible talks about growing up <coughs> into the full measure of the stature of Christ. That's reaching our full potential. Your life should be a process of growth, getting you to the place. At some point in your life, you see it and understand it. It's a process. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It's a process of God transforming you. He says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God in your life. See? <clears throat> the world can't do that. You go to college someplace, and I'm not against college. Hey, I was out in school in the sixth grade. I got a good education. You go to college, you go someplace, you get a good education, that's a good thing. But you know what they'll do? They can only do, they're limited in what they can do. They can inform you. You can go and hang out with a lot of people that give you good advice, and they can conform you. You can get arrested and go to jail and be in prison, and they can reform you. You can hang out with the wrong crowd and they'll misinform you. But only the Bible can transform you. Only the Bible can take you as a rotten, guilty sinner, give you God's salvation, and then through the process of the Holy Spirit of God working in you with the Word of God, building the principles of God in your life. That process of a transformation. People in our church that most of you who are involved in ministry and you do great things, you work with people and you help people, you weren't always that way. You were all rotten at one time in your life. You were all selfish at one time in your life. You all, your life was all about you at one time in your life. You, you wanted to do the things that you wanted to do. You didn't give a flip about the things of God. And many of you were Christian at the time, but you just didn't care. 
But once you found the Word of God and once you plugged into the Bible, an automatic process began to take place that has made you who you are and what you are today and, in, and invaluable to me in this church, but invaluable to God in His purpose and His calling. You know what happened? A transformation took place in your life. You don't look at things the same way. You don't think the same way. You don't react to things the same way. You now have a complete total outlook where things used to upset you before, they don't bother you now. They don't really bother you now because you, you understand things. You do. You understand things. And today I want to I look at yet another key passage in Proverbs 21, and I want to see, again, a great principle, some great promises that will tie into what we saw last week. And I want to today read Proverbs chapter 21, and I want to look at verse uh, uh, 3 and 4. Hey, Steve, back there, would you just ask God blessing on the service this morning? Yes, sir. Amen. Thank you, buddy. Now, we're going to have fun today because we're going to preach about us. I'm not going to preach about you. I'm going to preach about us. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I love people that can laugh at themselves. I had to do that a long time ago because of some of the, a lot of the stupid things that I do. But I, I, I like people that can, that can look at themselves when they do something dumb, something stupid, and laugh at themselves. You know, it's a thing where we get too uptight so many times. And I, I, I enjoy people that just can, can take it. You know what I'm saying? We, uh, we, we talk about, we kid each other all the time. It's, uh, I, there's always a kidding going on here with somebody. You know, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, somebody was texting back and forth on a group text and kidding back and forth and everything, you know. And it, let me just say this and, so I can get this off my chest. I'm all for group text. I think the technology of texting is wonderful. I want you to know that we grew up in different eras. Back in my day, we called people on the phone. Nobody calls anybody. I watched some of you kids text, man. Your, your fingers are shorter than on the rest of your finger. You're just so good. I can't. I'm... And I'll tell you right now, don't ever ask, don't ever send me a Bible question on a text. You'll never hear from me. <laughs> It'd take me four hours to answer something. I could talk to you and answer you in 30 seconds on, a, on the phone. Uh, when I grew up, they had telephones. See? Three things you got communicated through. Telegraph, telephone, tell a woman. See? <laughs> See, I told you it was going to be about us today. Now I'm looking. Who's not laughing? I'm seeing there. I'm, seeing, I'm, I'm zero in on you. It's going to be a fun time today because I'm going to talk about how rotten we are. And if you don't know you're rotten, you will by the time we're done today. Let me hear an amen if you know you're rotten. Oh, man, that's better than when I ask you if you're saved. <laughs> now, Proverbs 21, verse 3 and 4 says this. Here we go. To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. A high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. 
Now, there's a couple of things that I want to look at here and I help define for you, and, and I think that that's uh, uh, very important. You know, I've told you many, many times that uh, Christianity today, one of the downfalls of it, that it suffers from bad definitions. We've lost the true biblical definition of so many things. And that's what happens when you lose your Bible. Most churches, most pastors, most Christians don't have a Bible. They have some monstrosity that they think is a Bible, but it isn't a King James Bible. It isn't the Word of God. So they, they, they lose the definitions of things. And, uh, and I understand that. And I've told you before that uh, one of the things that you want to do in the process of growing up spiritually is you want to find the words that define. There are words in the Bible that when you find them, it defines something. And then there's, there's verses in the Bible, when you find it, it defines something. And then there's passages in the Bible, chapters in the Bible, uh, passages that, that will define something, and chapters that will define something. In our process of coming through the Word of God over the last, what, 15 years together, we've laid a lot of those out, and we'll continue to do that. And the first thing that I want to look at and I want to define for you is the word sacrifice. Sacrifice today is the most misunderstood word in all of Christianity, along with about 40 other ones. And I want to I wanna talk about two stories in the Bible that will define the aspect of a Bible, biblical-based sacrifice. And I want you to see that. And like I said, we're going to have fun today. We're going to see ourselves in this, and we're going to see how goofy we really are. And uh, hopefully, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come to some good conclusions today. But I want you to, for a moment, turn your Bible over to 2 Samuel chapter 24. And you're going to learn some good stuff today, and there'll be some stuff that will help you further your Bible. We'll, you know, I always throw those things in. But in 2 Samuel chapter 24, I want to pick it up in verse 18 through 25. And this is a story of David. This is a story of David and the threshing floor. And uh, let's begin to read in verse uh, 18 of 2 Samuel chapter 24. And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up and rear uh, an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Arana went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Arana said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Arana said unto David, Let my lord the king take uh, uh, and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here is oxen for burnt sacrifice, the threshing instruments, and other instruments of oxen and wood. All these things did Arana as the king, uh, as the king give unto the king. And Arana said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Arana, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God. Of that which doth not cost me not cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the auction for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. Now I, I want to talk to you a moment on the importance of this passage here. There's some things I want you to know before I really get into it. First of all, allow me to give you some details on this story in the Bible. Now, this, this threshing floor here that he wants to buy, this piece of ground here, uh, this is the exact spot on which in just a 
couple of few short years, Solomon is going to build the temple. This, this piece of ground is holy ground. So I want the first thing I want you to know that this is so special that this is where in just a few short years when Solomon comes on, on, the, on the scene, he's going to build the temple on this site right here. If you would go, uh, if you would go to Israel today and you go to Jerusalem, you'll see that golden dome, which they call the Dome of the Rock over there. That is the exact spot where the threshing floor was. That is the exact spot where Solomon's temple was. Not only was it the exact spot where Solomon's temple was, not only is it the spot today that the, the Muslims have it, by the way, but this is the exact spot right outside the uh, Mount of Olives where Jesus Christ is going to come back at the second coming of Christ. It's a special piece of ground. It's the exact spot that the millennial temple will be built on, which is talked about in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. It's the exact same spot. So there's something special about this piece of ground here. I want you to know that, first of all. Then I want you to notice that it's talking about a threshing floor. That's a place where wheat is separated from the chaff. You're going to find that any time, a defining word, here it is, any time you find the word threshing floor or threshing machine in the Bible, the context will always be the second coming of Christ. When you go to Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, uh, you'll find that uh, it's a passage on the second coming of Christ. And the threshing machine will always be a picture of the Lord coming back and taking Israel and all the other people with it. And as a threshing machine separates the true wheat from the chaff, the threshing machine of the second coming of Christ separates the saved from the unsaved. So you find it all the place in the Bible that way. And it's an incredible thing to know that because you're going to it's a lot of keys to your bible and of course you'll find it as i gave you in matthew chapter 3 verses 11 and 12 you'll find him separating the chaff from the wheat there and uh, context very clearly is the second coming of christ all through the old testament all through the old testament you'll find the threshing floor and the threshing machine now the principle here is simple getting back to talking about us here the principle here is simple a sacrifice, a real biblical sacrifice has to cost you something. Look at verse 24. Nay, but I will, I will surely buy it at a price. Notice, he didn't offer a price. He didn't negotiate the price. He said, whatever you want for it, I will pay that price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God, which hath not cost me nothing. And the first thing I want you to realize and understand about the word sacrifice in a Bible sense, if you're going to ever as a Christian make a sacrifice, don't, don't, don't confuse it with the piddly little things that God's people do today. Don't confuse it with the fact, well, I turned the football game off and, and to study my Bible. Don't confuse it with that. A real biblical sacrifice, there'll be a cost involved, and you will, it will cost you something to be a sacrifice. Now, I, I don't, I said earlier, I don't preach anything, I don't think I've ever preached a message on, on, on giving in this church money. And the reason for that is, is because I've realized that when you teach the people's heart and people fall in love with God, all those things take care of themselves. Most pastors are so inept, they want the money so bad, they forget the graft of the person's heart. I just don't want your money. I want everything you are. I want everything about you for God. And the only way I can get that is not 
targeting your wallet or this or that. I'm going to target your heart. Because when your heart's right with God, everything's right with God. And in our giving to God, and I've talked about this before, uh, uh, you find, and it's, a, it's found in the life of Abraham back in Genesis chapter 18 through verse 22, you find in giving to God and finances, there's three types of giving. And it's, it's recognized back there in that great story of Abraham. Back there in Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, Abraham gave tithes to, uh, to somebody. A little bit later on in Genesis chapter 18, when the Lord and the, and the angels show up, uh, the Bible says that he, he, he puts, a, he puts, a, he puts a, a great banquet on for them. It cost him a lot of money. There's a picture of somebody going over and above the tithe and just wanting to give something to God because they love him. And the Bible says that when Abraham fixed all of that, he stood by. He didn't even eat. He just watched them enjoy it. He did it for them. He gave it to them. He wouldn't even partake of it. Now the counter of that is Lot. Abraham, when the Lord and the angels come to him, he puts on this great feast. And then he says to them, I got just a morsel of bread for you. Are you kidding me? Morsel of bread? There was roast lamb, roast beef, roast this, roast that. Zardas barbecue was there. Jack Stack was there. Everybody was there. Arthur Bryant drove up a little late, but he got there. And he says this great feast was a morsel of bread. Now, Lot, on the other hand, when the angel showed up to him, he brings them in and he, 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 gives, them, he gives them unleavened bread. And he says, I've got a great feast for you. You see how people get definitions wrong? Lot thought, that old, did you ever eat unleavened bread? Don't ever make a sandwich with it, I guarantee you. Somebody told me, we went to a church a couple of weeks ago and, and they had communion and they used, <coughs> they used uh, some kind of crackers for the bread. Well, in the Lord's Supper, it's supposed to be unleavened bread. You go to a Christian bookstore, they sell it. You know, they make it, they buy it, it tastes terrible. It does. I mean, but I, 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 don't, I don't agree with that, but I can understand why you wouldn't want to eat the one and eat the other, even though I would never do it. It's supposed to be unleavened. It's supposed to be unleavened. But we lose our definitions. One guy gives everything he has to God in an offering, and he says it's just a morsel of bread. The other guy just gives a little piece of stale bread and thinks it's a great feast. You know what that tells me? That tells me that most of God's people think they're sacrificing to God <laughs> when you're not. Oh, God, I'm doing such a work for you. Da, 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 da. Oh, God, I'm, I'm, I'm sacrificing all this stuff. You're not. Amen. A sacrifice must cost you something. You know, and it's the same concept in our, in our personal walk with God. We as God's people we tend to give God what's left over in our lives that we don't want. Told you it'd be about us today. Notice I'm saying we. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be it transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove it is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. A living sacrifice for God. A living sacrifice for God after He became a dying sacrifice for you and for me. And look what it says there. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, a holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. God thought after the sacrifice that he made for you, it was only reasonable that you'd make one back to him. Which is your reasonable service. And you see, again, what God thinks is reasonable, we think is unreasonable. Well, God, I, 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 can't, I, I, can't, I can't turn everything over my life to you. It'll be no fun. God gave the very best he had for a sacrifice for you and for me. I'm going to say it again. God gave the very best he had as a sacrifice for us, and we will give him the leftovers of our life and not give him the very best we have. We'll save it for our careers. We'll save it for this. We'll save it for that. God gave us the very best in his sacrifice. We'll give penalty things to God that mean nothing and call it a sacrifice. God gave his son for you, but you won't give your son or daughter to him. Oh, you'll give him the football. You'll give him the soccer. You'll give them to baseball, but you'll never turn them over to him. Now, what we think is unreasonable, God, you, you gave your son. He hung on the cross. He died for me. You became a, a, a dying sacrifice for me, but my becoming a living sacrifice for you, based on what you did, just a little unreasonable. That's us. Yeah, come on, amen. Smile. It's okay. We're all in the same boat. You could get mad at me if I said, you're that way. I said, we're that way. I'm probably worse than you. Somebody going to disagree with that for me? <laughs> <laughs> you at least, no, no, not you, no, 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 no. You know me way too well. Hey, what, what, what God thought. I mean, I, I, in God's mind, I know he knows everything, but in my mind, you know, you know how disappointed you get when somebody lets you down that you counted on? And we've all experienced that. I've had people that I trusted and people that I thought were my friends and found out later they betrayed me, they lied to me. They did this, they did that, and all behind the scenes they orchestrated something and, and hoped that I would never find out about it. I find out everything in time. I mean, the only way you can ever keep a secret that nobody knows is not to tell anybody. The first time you tell one person, it's out! But you know how, 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 it, how you felt? Somebody that you invested your life in, somebody that you thought was your friend, somebody that you did so much for, and then they turn around and, and they just... I wonder how God feels when we do that to him. I know how I feel, and you know how you feel. But God on the cross, he hung there. And I, I, know, I, I know this is probably just good preaching, but I really believe this. When, I believe, when he was hanging on the cross, he had my name on his lips. And you can claim that too if you want. But honestly, I don't think he even thought of you. I think if when he was hanging on the cross, if you could whisper in his ear and he said to him, uh, what, what about Zach Sanders? He says, Zach who? I'm thinking about Bob Alexander. 
And if Zach could have whispered in his ear and said, what about, what about Bob Alexander? He'd have said, who's he? I'm thinking about Zach Sanders. You can claim that. I believe he hung there with my names on his lips. I believe with every whip of that cat of nine tails. I believe when he wanted to quit and wanted to give up because he was human like everybody else. I believe when he even entered the thought in his mind, the reason why he didn't is because he saw me in hell for eternity. Now, maybe you won't strong enough to comp- claim that. I am. And I'm telling you, that's right. Thank you, Lord. And I'll tell you something else. How in the world, once you understand that, do you think becoming a living sacrifice up against his dying sacrifice is unreasonable for you? Uh, we're, we're something else, man. We're something else. I've thought of many, many times, God would have been a lot better off if he had just sent us to hell and saved dogs. It's an incredible concept. The cost of being a living sacrifice. Luke chapter 14, verse 28, it says, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he has sufficient to finish it? Now that's a great verse. That's an incredible verse. Now, I'll start by saying this. Tower in the Bible, Tower of David, high tower. It's the place that you want to get to in your life of spiritual maturity, that you're high enough with God that you can look over the circumstances and see what's really going on in life. A high tower. In the Bible, it always represents a man's maturity, that he gets so high with God that he sees over the circumstances of life. And that's what every one of you ought to be doing in your life. You ought to be building a high tower, the Tower of David, based on the Word of God. But here's the problem. We fool around so much in our time with the Bible. We have so much downtown in our lives. We don't spend any time in the Bible. And then suddenly, oh, some disaster comes into our life. Now we're going to serve God and we're going to really do something for God and we start out to do it and we fail. You know why? There's the reason you don't have sufficiency to finish what you started because you got nothing in the bank. You built nothing in your life. Now you folks that are being discipled here in Discipleship 1, some of you folks that are going to Discipleship 2, you kids that are in the Institute yesterday and some of you older ones too, you folks that are in the people ministry, you folks that are in the prayer groups that Bob put together with his lessons. You folks that are, that are part of the teaching here that you're teaching and laying out the Bible. It's all for one reason. It builds sufficiency in your life. That when you sit down to build the tower that God wants you to build and you sit down to count the cost, you look at the money you have enough to build it. Money being your spiritual worth, which you put into your life. This is why we fail. This is why it costs too much. Listen, a life of a living sacrifice will cost you some things. And the reason why most of God's people never go past the point in their life, all of us. You know why we won't go past the point in our life? We come up against the cost, and the cost is too great. We don't want to give up the things we got to give up. Listen, a life of a living sacrifice will cost you some things. You know what it costs God's son? He gave up everything. 
He left the throne of glory. He left his deity. He left heaven. He left the angels. He left his father. He took on the body of a man. He walked down through the dirty, dusty streets for 33 years. And finally, he was rejected by everybody. They spit in his face. They ripped out his beard. They pulled out his hair. They whipped him on the back. They finally put a spear in his side. He gave up everything to be our sacrifice. What are we willing to give up today? See the problem? See, we can have a good time with this because we're all in the same boat. We're all in a mess. I'll tell you one thing it'll probably cost you if you become a living sacrifice. It'll cost you the convenience of your life sometimes. We don't have to have our day disrupted, do we? I don't. The older I get, the more stick in the mud I am. Thank you. I, 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 I like things to go the way they go. You throw a wrench into my day, and you know what? If I'm not careful with it, I, I can, I, it just ruined my whole day. I, at my age, I'm so programmed to where I want to go. I want to go. When I go. When I go to a stoplight and somebody is texting on the phone when the light turns green, I understand road rage. I mean, I, when I go to a restaurant and I sit down and if I'm there for 10, 15 minutes and you haven't come and waited on me yet, there better be a fire someplace in the kitchen. <laughs> I understand these things. But I want to tell you something. When you get into the ministry and you start to become God's living sacrifice, there's some things you're going to have to give up that are convenient for you right now that may not be conducive what you want to do with it. When you start dealing in somebody's life or you start to slap against somebody or start working with somebody, you just can't do it when it works for you. I mean, I mean, I, in the middle of at 2 o'clock in the morning, if somebody calls me up and says, I'm going to commit suicide, I can't say, well, just hold off till 9. <laughs> now, do I want to get up at 2? Do I really think this person is going to kill themselves? No. Should they? Some cases, better take two bullets. You're not a very good shot. But you know what? So what? The bottom line is, when somebody has a need, you have to put your convenience aside. You have to, you have to, in the ministry, you can't have it your way all the time. You can't do what you want to do the way you want to do it. There'll be times, and you know, I, I, I appreciate you families in here that your kids are playing Little League or you're playing this or playing that, and when you sign them up, you, you tell the coach, you know what? We, our kids want to play. We want to be here. But we will not be in games on Sunday morning and Thursday night. I appreciate that. Because it's so convenient just to go with the flow. I'll tell you something else. A life of living sacrifice will cost you some friends. How can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, you can try to make that work, but you can't. The Lord has a way when two people aren't in agreement on something in the Word of God, you can try to, well, let's just leave the Bible aside. Let's just leave this aside. God's going to say, really? Watch how we're not going to lay it aside. You'll have, to, you'll have to give up some friends. Some friends are probably good. You have to give up. When I got into the ministry, when I way back when, it cost me some friends. I had guys that I used to hang out with and at the factory and do all these things that, that they, uh, they, uh, they, they didn't want anything to do with anymore. You see, I was the kind of guy, 
that I either have to be all in or I'm all out. I'm not a, if you may not, you may figure it out, I'm not a halfway guy. If I'm in a relationship as a friend with somebody, I'll be your best friend on the planet. If I'm not your friend, I'll be your worst friend on the planet. I'm either in or I'm out. I can't be halfway. And when I got right with God that night, boy, I remember it was a Sunday night, boy, I went down and I cried my heart out and I wanted to get back to God. That Friday that I left work, I was just like everybody else. I was cussing, I was telling dirty jokes, I was laughing at all of them. We were doing all the things that the guys around the time clock doing all the time. And I went to church that night and God smote my heart and I walked down there and I gave my life to God and I knew me. I knew me. I knew that if I was a, cow, I was a coward inside. I was scared to death because now I had just changed my life and now I got to go back to work with the same crowd that wasn't around me seeing me change my life. So I knew they were going to suck me back in. Do you know what I did? I went to the bookstore and I bought me them chick tracks that we use. I bought me 10 or 12 packs of them. I got me a little New Testament Bible. And I got into that place, and I, the first thing I did was start passing out tracts to everybody. When I got around in a circle, I told them my testimony, what happened. And I didn't do it because I thought I was spiritual. I didn't do it because I wanted to make them think I was better than them. I wanted to do it because I knew me. And I knew if I didn't blow a hole in that thing big enough for a bus to drive through and make my stand and shoot my mouth off, they'd suck me back in. Amen. I fixed it for myself that I could never go back. And I lost some friends. Gain some friends. See, that's the thing you don't see. Well, I'm going to lose these friends. God to give you some new friends. To give you some better friends. But you don't look at that. You know why? Oh, it's, oh, I can't, oh, you'll lose some friends. I'll tell you something else. Sometimes you lose some family. I've seen, watch some of you guys and some of you gals take a stand with your family and things aren't the way they used to be anymore, are they? Oh, they're nice to you, but you know there's a, there's a, there's a wall there. You know that you can only talk about certain things and then it goes cold. They know, that you don't, they know that you don't like them being where they're at and they don't like you being where you're at and it's just a rift there. Sometimes it'll cost you your job. Sometimes it'll cost you a relationship. I remember years ago when I was at camp there working, right when I got right with God, it was senior high week. It was the first one I'd been to. Dr. Ruckman was preaching that night. And they had a girl get up and give a testimony. She was from Middletown, Ohio. Beautiful little girl. About 17 or 18. And she got up and she gave a testimony of, of how that she gave up this and she gave up that. And she was this in school and all this stuff. And she had a career as a singer and everybody and that. And she just wanted you know, she says, when I got saved, she says, I just walked away from everything. She says, I can stand here you tonight. And she said, every talent I have, I got from God. And she says, I'm not giving it to the world. She says, you know what? When God saved me, he saved me for a purpose. And she says, I'm going to fulfill that purpose, and I'm going to give God the rest of my life. It was one of the most greatest testimonies I've ever heard in my life. Afterwards, you know how young teenage girls are. They all flocked around her. And she they wanted to talk with her, you know, and it was a wonderful little time. I heard one of the little girls say, oh, that was wonderful. She said, you know what? I would just give the world to have a testimony like that. And that little 17-year-old girl looked down at him and said, you know what? That's just what it cost me. It cost me the world to have that testimony. She was willing to pay the price. But there's a cost involved. There's a cost involved. In Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, here we are again. Here we are again, all of us. Everybody on the same big bus here. Here we go. 
the sacrifice bus. Come on, get on. Bill, you drive. You drive it. Now, here we go. Another place where Jesus is not very nice. He's not, he, he, he's kind of condescending here. There's certain passages in the Bible where Jesus didn't have the spirit of Jesus that day. He doesn't answer the way we think Christians should answer. Because we think Christianity is flowery, fluffy. Never raise your voice. When you shake hands with a pastor, when you leave, it's like picking up a dead fish. He's some little wimpy guy. He just stands over in the corner. And I'm sure that these three guys left the church after this conversation. Look at verse 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee wherever thou goest. Oh. Onward, Christian soul, I'll follow you, Lord, wherever you go. How many times I've heard that? Didn't call me Lord, but how many times have I heard that? Bob, I'll go. Where I'm with God. I want to go with God. Bob, this is my year that I'm going to really be something for God. That year stretched out to a millennium. <laughs> you still ain't there yet. I will follow thee wherever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, praise the Lord, brother. Thank God. I'll tell you what, there's somebody around here that really wants to do what's right. I am really glad to have. That's not what he said. Jesus said unto him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man have nowhere to lay his head. Whew. That make you think. Verse 59. And he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, you know what? I understand that. We love our dads. You go ahead and home and you, you go ahead and bury him. You give up a eulogy and you talk about how great he was. And you go ahead and, yeah, son, you go ahead and bury him. That ain't what he said. Verse 60, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. That's pretty rough, man. I mean, you call me on the phone and say, Bob, my dad just died and my mother just died. What well, can we do the funeral? And I'd say to you, let the dead bury the dead. I could even give you a book, chapter, verse, and you'd still leave the church. <laughs> verse 61, and another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. Jesus said, you go home and you kiss your mama goodbye. You tell your dad and your brothers and your sisters that you're going to go serve the Lord. Yeah, you go ahead and do that. That ain't what he said. Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Woo! See, the first guy says, I'll follow you wherever you're going. And Jesus says, Tough road, kid. No place to sleep tonight. The next guy says, Another says, he says to him, follow me. But I got to go bury my father. And he says, let the dead bury the dead. Come on, let's go. And in verse 61, another one says, I'll follow you, but let me first bid my, my kinfolk goodbye. 
He says, forget them. Let's go. Now, the answers seem harsh, don't they? Sure, they do. But it shows us something else here. Because he's given us the general principles that you better learn if you're going to be a living sacrifice for God. Because when you say, as guy number one said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere, anywhere can get you in a lot of trouble. And the general principles on giving your all for God's purpose. We, we never count the cost. We, we, we will never sit down and realize that it's going to cost us something. These three guys never saw the cost involved. They were caught up like so many of us with the emotion, with the grandeur of serving God. Oh, with the, you know, the, 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 everybody patting you on the back and hugging you and the great uh, euphoria of being here in a place where we're all, yeah, I get it. But there's going to cost you something when you leave here. And the question is simply, are we willing to pay it? Now, let me give you the general principles here. So you'll see what Jesus is saying, and he's not being harsh. He's, being, he's trying to get a point across to them. Sometimes when you preach, you say some harsh things to get a point across. People do the same thing. They get upset. Oh, what's he talking about? I'm trying to talk to you and show you a principle. Now, the first guy says, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, the Son of Man hath nowhere to call home. So he's telling a young kid, no home. What he's saying through, in essence, is in this life, don't get your roots down too deep where you're living. Don't get so tied down in the things of this life that you lose the purpose of God in your life. We get a tendency to get into life and get a nice, comfortable lifestyle, and there's nothing wrong with any of it, as long as it's in balance. We get the idea that we get so tied down to this old world. You know, old Mel Sabak used to say, don't ever get yourself so tied down that you can't pull out in 15 minutes if God wants you to go someplace else. And some of God's people are just too rooted in this old world. <clears throat> they couldn't pull up to go anywhere. So the principle in general is, you know what, if you're going to serve me, you better realize that don't get your roots down too deep in this world. Because it'll stop you. When you have to count the cost of what all that you have over here versus the cost of serving God over here, that will win every time. You know, I tell you people all the time to keep everything negative out of your life as closely out as you can. And I know that that's not always possible. But I am telling you this. You need to keep negativity, that would be people, places, circumstances, out of your life as much as you can. Do you know why? Because within the Christian and our Christian lives, negativity always wins. It will. And there were many a guy that says, Lord, I'm going to serve you. And then when it came down to it, his roots were too deep in the world. I think of 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 30. We talk about Solomon. We talked yesterday how Solomon did good and then Solomon did bad. And you can hang it on this, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38. Solomon built the temple of God, and the Bible says that he built, it took, him, it took him seven years to build God's temple. That in the next chapter in verse 1, it says, but he was 13 years building his own house. You see, when you spend more time spending 
building your house than you do God's house, you're never going to pay the cost. It just never is. You never will. Then the second guy. Well, he says, I, I'll follow you, but I got to go bury my father. And Jesus says, uh-uh, no funerals. You know, many, what he's saying, here's the general principle. Many times it will be your own families that will hold you back. And of course, the great example of that is in Genesis chapter 12. When God called Abraham out, he says, separate yourself from everybody. And he didn't do that. He took Lot with him. And look at the problems Abraham had. Sometimes you have, I don't mean this in a bad way, but sometimes uh, in your general family area uh, with your, your mom and your dad and your aunts and your uncles and your brothers and your sisters, when they have an adversity, I guarantee you if you've got a family that they're all, and I've had this happen many times, where the whole family was Jehovah Witness or Mormon and that person got saved, they had to give up their family. But just like God gave you new friends, God gave you new family. But you've got to see it that way. Now, here's what he's saying. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Another day Jesus was off. If a man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wow! Now, what do you do with that verse? You put it in context. You know what he's saying? He's saying the love that we all have for our moms and our dads and our kids and each other ought to be hatred compared to the love that we have for God. Amen. That's what he's saying. He's not telling you to go hate your mom and your dad. He's telling you that by comparison, the love that we have for God should supersede every love on this planet. Amen. And that's what he's telling this guy. If that guy would have said, I guarantee you, if that guy would have said, and maybe he did, I don't know, it's not recorded. If that guy would have said, yes, sir, let the dead bury the dead. I'm going with you. The Lord would have probably said, that's good. Now go home and bury your dad. Now, the third guy, he said, well, first let me go back and say goodbye. And Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let me tell you something. When it comes to the ministry, when it comes to you becoming the living sacrifice for God, you don't say goodbye to the world. You don't shake hands with it and say goodbye. You don't say, I'll miss you, I'll see you later. You leave it. You're gone from it. That Bible makes it very clear in the principles that if you keep looking back, you're never going to move forward. you got to wipe it out. you got to end it. You can't play with it. Living in the past sins of your life will destroy you. Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are above. The prize of the high calling of God. And you got to, he's telling this kid, hey, look, you know what? I'm telling you something. You can't go back and say goodbye. The world won't let you do that. You always want to say, well, I'll just keep the door open a little bit. Well, I won't totally let them all go. I'll just keep some that aren't too bad. You can't do that. You got to walk away from it if you're going to be the living sacrifice and let God put back into your life what he wants. Now, you want to see our real problem here? This all fits us. We're all this. This is us. But you don't want to know what our real problem is? Every one of us. Every one of us. And here we are. 
I want you to see the real problem we have. Maybe some of you have seen it already. Why we won't be the sacrifice for God that he was for us. And it's right here in this passage in verse 59 and verse 61. Look at it. Me first. Let me first. Let me first. That's our problem. Us first, God second. Let me first do this. It's all about us, isn't it? We never, we never give to God anything more than the minimum so it won't interfere with our lifestyle. Now, the second great story here, an example, will be found in 1 Samuel chapter 15, again in the Old Testament. And this is a story of Saul and his idea of sacrifice. And this is a great example of wrong definitions. Boy, are we in this one. If you ever want to see a picture of you and me, brother, here it is. No wonder some of God's people can't stand the Bible. I'm telling you. This is a picture of 20 and 21st Christianity right on a button. Now, hear your story and what a great, what a great study David and Saul is. Because in this study here, we're going to look at Saul. The last one we saw, David. And we saw David's idea of a sacrifice. Now we're going to see Saul's. And Saul and David is a tremendous study in the Bible. They represent a lot of things. But it's an incredible study that shows us how they really represent two kinds of pastors. They really do. David, who loved the book, loved his people, feeds them the Word of God, and they love him for it. Saul, on the other hand, hates the book, takes it from the people, uses them, blames them, and only sees what he wants to do himself. Now, there's two verses in the Bible that you've got to have that defines these two pastors. The first one's in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, where the Lord says, And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. That's David. And then Isaiah 65, 5, pastors which say, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. That's Saul. See, the two types there? Now, you see, look at our passage here. Look at, uh, look at our passage here in first, uh, first uh, um, wherever I gave you here, first, first Samuel chapter 15. Look at verse 2, 2 and 3. Here's what God tells Saul. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and, listen, and utterly destroy all that they have. Spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. He says, kill them all. He commanded him to kill everything that was there. Keep nothing. Wipe it all out. Spare them not. Now, let me give you a practical application here based on what I already said. When you get saved, you have to kill everything that's left in the world in your life. You do. You have to get rid of it. You have to get rid of it. He says down there, men and women. There's some men and some women that's got to go out of your life once you get saved. It's just that simple. He says the camels, there go your cigarettes, right out the window. <laughs> he says the oxen, there's your false religion, right out the window. He says the infants and the sucklings, there's your immature attitude, there's your spiritual immaturity, there's your self, there's your drama. And then he says asses, there's some asses that's got to go out of your life. <laughs> 
I love it when you can cuss and use the Bible to justify it. <laughs> but now, that's what he told him. Kill everything. But now Saul gets an NIV. And he revises what God had told him to do, and he didn't do what God commanded him. Look at verse 8. Saul now. And he took Agag, the king of Amalekites, alive. And not only destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile in refuge they destroyed utterly. He didn't do what God told him to do. Now here's a camp for you and for me. God gave the clear principle on it. Ah, we think we know better than God, don't we? God said, kill them all, destroy them all. He gets the newest translation and says, oh, I'm going to revise what God said. God didn't know what he was talking about when he wrote those principles. So I'm going to do my thing, my way, and I'm going to stay Christian. He disobeyed clearly what God told him to do. Now watch this. Now watch this. (laughs) I love you. I love me. We love each other. But here we are. Here we are. One of the most amazing phenomena we'll ever see in ministry, and we're all in the boat. He clearly disobeyed what God said. Anybody not see that? He clearly disobeyed what God said. Now, when Samuel shows up to get the facts of the situation, he finds that Saul has not followed the Lord. And what follows is a great model for us in defining the true sacrifice of something in our lives. God not, Saul not uh, interested in God's purpose. He's only interested in what he wants to do. So he, like many of us, God's people today, he picks and chooses what he wants to follow, like we do. God clearly gave him the principle, clearly told him what to do. He wants to pick and choose what he wants to follow out of what God clearly said. All the time pretending he's right with God. There we are. There we are. There's me. There's you. There's us. Now look at Samuel's response. Oh, it gets better. Look at verse 19 through uh, 19 down here through 23. Samuel shows up. And Samuel says, Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and did evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king, Amalek, and and utterly destroyed uh, the amount. Now now we've got a controversy. And when you get into ministry, when you start working with people, this is the controversy you're going to find. The Bible says one thing, you want to do something else, and when I point it out to you, you don't like it. Thank you. You're going to find that. This is the problem. He's arguing with Samuel. I did what God... No, you didn't. Read it. God told you... And, and then, it's a, you know, I mean, it, it, it's incredible. God, I'll give it to you again, just in case somebody missed it. God said in verse 3, Go now and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Spare them not, but slay both man and women and infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass, everything. 
So Samuel shows up and he says in verse 13, he says, I did it. I obeyed the Lord. I did everything. What are you talking about? And Samuel says in verse 14, then what meaneth this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? He didn't do everything. And you'll face that all the time with people. The teaching will be clear. The principle will be exact. Yet we'll do what we want to do and forsake the word of the Lord and then argue the fact that when we're right when the Bible clearly says we're not. And I get it. It is reasoning. Oh, I love his reasoning because we all do it. This is me. And his reasoning for it will be the same as us. Oh, well, you don't understand. I know what God said, but I wanted to keep some of those sheep for a sacrifice for God. Oh, that is so Christian. My soul, you're so spiritual. Man, it takes a great man of God to be able to read and hear what God said and then be smarter to God to change it. But your motive was wonderful. Well, you don't understand, Sam. How many times have I heard it? Well, Bob, you don't understand. No, that's the problem. I do understand. Samuel, you don't understand. Samuel said, no, I do understand. Samuel, you don't understand. We kept the best for the Lord. We kept the best for the Lord. Because I didn't keep him for myself. We're not going to sell it and keep the money. I kept everything that we kept for the Lord. Because I love him. (laughs) You see, that's Christianity today for you and for me. The end always justifies the means. But Samuel hits him right between the eyes, boy. Samuel nails him right between the eyeballs. No wonder people don't like preaching and preachers. Saul said, uh, uh, he says to Samuel, I did everything. Samuel said, don't tell me what you did for the Lord. Was it done right in the context of what God told you to do? We've said it many, many times. It's never right to do wrong to get the chance to do right. And boy, here it comes. So Samuel nails him. He says, you know what? I get it. God told you to kill everything. You decided that you knew more than God. And now you're telling me that you kept the best of the sheep and the things of life for sacrifice for God. Oh, you're such a guy that wants to do a sacrifice for the Lord. Well, let me give you a piece of advice based on God and the Word of God. To obey is better than to sacrifice. Don't tell me what you're going to do. Have you done it based on the principles? He says, for the rebellion as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as the iniquity and idolatry. Boy, we got a lot of witches around today. I think we're going to start selling brooms in the bookstore. Rebellion against the clear principles of the Word of God. Your stubbornness. My stubbornness. My stubbornness. Our stubbornness to resist the Holy Spirit of God to change who we are. I'm going to tell you something. Your rebellious children will be a direct result of your rebellion to God's principles. Write it down. And their stubbornness will be based on your stubbornness to do what's right with the principles of God. And you'll sit here and justify yours, and they'll justify theirs. 
We're a mess. Somebody said, oh, I don't understand how God, I don't believe in hell. How could a loving God ever send anybody to a place like hell? How could God ever take somebody like us to heaven? We all deserve to be in hell. Where we don't deserve is to be in heaven. Now look at verse 4. A high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. Now that's Saul exactly. That's us exactly. He did what he did. He ignored the word of God and did what he wanted to do over God's clear instructions of principles of killing them all. And then he tried to justify it and say, I'm okay and I'm spiritual and I'm right with God. And Samuel, I don't know what you're talking about. I did everything God told me to do. And Samuel pulled it out, book, chapter, and verse. And no, he didn't. But you see, like the devil in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, he'd gotten a proud look. He got in a proud heart. He's like so many of us. He thinks he knows more about it than God does. He thinks he has the authority to override what God says in the principles in the Word of God because he wants to do what he wants to do. He's not God. Saul's not got God's purpose in heart. He's got his own purpose. And that's what we do. I, I love the word plowing. I love the word plowing. I love it. That's a great word in the context of this verse. You see, when a man gets a proud look and a proud heart and will ignore the clear principles of the Word of God, he will just plow through his life and destroy everything in its path. If you don't move your car off the street the night before of a big heavy snow, you're going to get buried in it. That snow plow does not distinguish between cars. It just plows the road in a big general format, and buries everything on both sides. And I want to tell you, in life, when you let, in your life becomes the plow, you're going to bury everything. You're going to bury your kids. You're going to bury your marriage. You're going to live with your family. You're going to bury everything in your life. And you're just plowing through. There's no principles involved. You're not living and operating by the principle. You're just plowing through life, like Saul. You know, an old farmer told me one time, I was preaching one time in West Virginia, Right outside, of, or right outside of Gettysburg. And I know Gettysburg is not West Virginia, but it's real close right there. And an old farmer, afterwards one time, we sat down and I was preaching on, well, I don't remember what I was preaching on, but he, he, he wanted to give me an, an analogy, which I really appreciated. And he loved the Lord. He was an old guy, been saved probably about 70 years old when I met him. He's probably dead in his home in heaven now. But he, was, he worked hard all of his life. And he said, you know, preacher, he said, I enjoyed your sermon tonight, preaching on walking with the Lord and, and uh, living a straight life and doing what's right. And he says, you know, he says, I want to tell you something. He says, I've been farming for almost 70 years, 60 years. And he says, you know what? They have tractors nowadays, but when I first started out plowing the fields, we had a hand plow and a mule. And he says, for the first 30 years of my life, I plowed those rolls and those earth. Uh, and he says, you know, I read in there what the Bible talks about, sowing the seed and, and, you know, harvest and all that stuff. And he says, I always took that to heart that when, when you know, that me plowing the rows in the earth is a picture of my Christian life. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. He says, when you start to plow a field, you've got to really be careful. He said, it ain't something you can just go out and do haphazardly. He says, you've got to pay attention to what you're doing. And he's got to say, pay attention of, of how you're doing it. He says, because the, 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 the rows that you plow in the ground... If they get crooked, it's almost impossible to get them straight again. 
And he says, you wind up with a failed harvest because all of your furrows that you're putting in the ground don't go straight. They're all crooked and it messes the whole thing up. And he says, it's almost impossible to get those rows straightened out again once you get off track and they get crooked. And I just said, amen. Amen. And you see, it's so in life that when you dump the Word of God and the principles of God and you don't become the living sacrifice, you're just going to plow through your life the way you want to go and your rows are going to get crooked. And after a period of time, you're not going to get them straightened out again. You develop a high look, a proud heart, and just go your own way and plow all the rows of your life crooked. And then wonder why there's no harvest in your life. Wonder why you get to the end of your life and your kids are gone, your, your life's a mess, you've got nothing to look for, you've done anything, you've plowed the rows crooked. Now God has a specific calling for us. God has a specific purpose for each of us. God saved us for a purpose and He will orchestrate everything in our lives according to that purpose. We saw it last week in 21, 1 and 2 the heart of the kings and the hand of the Lord, eight, Romans 8, 28. But just as there is, was a sacrifice involved to get you and me saved, there will be a sacrifice involved for us to accomplish God's purpose. And that sacrifice of you and me, a living sacrifice in God's mind, is a reasonable service. He doesn't think it's unreasonable for you and for me to burn our life out for Him. He does not think it's unreasonable for you and I to put every, and I know life's a balance, and I'm not saying you shave your head and get a monk and head to the airport with little tinkerbells. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that you count the cost, you realize that you have a calling and you have a purpose, and you invest the rest of your life not putting me first, but putting him first. He thinks that's our reasonable service. But there'll be a cost involved. Because now that you know that, now it's been defined for you, you know that real sacrifice will always cost you something. It will be as simple as I know how to put it. It'll cost you something to do the real work of God. And the question today, and we close here in just a second, the question today is will we pay it? Will I pay it? Will you pay it? Are we willing to see and understand and grow to the place where we really count the cost, and then are willing to pay it. To build that high tower in your life and my life of understanding. You know, I thought, what a great illustration. We don't usually think of it this way, but boy, it really does a great illustration. Adam and Eve. After all God did for them. After all God gave them. After all God spent the time with them that He spent. After all the things that He did. Bible says that Eve was deceived in the transgression as the weaker vessel. But Adam wasn't deceived, was he? He came home one day, and he looked at his wife, and in a moment he knew something had changed. She wasn't Snow White anymore. She now had turned into a human being, a fallen human being, that was destined to the lake of fire if God didn't do something. And Adam came home that day, and he looked at her, and he looked at God, and in this little analogy, she now represents the world. She's dead in trespasses of sin. He's not. He's still alive as a son of God. And he looked at her, and he looked at God. He looked at what he had with her, 
and what he had with God. You know, in counseling, we teach you that you can't build two intimate relationships at the same time. And how many times have we all seen somebody come in and get saved and start to do what's right, and an old boyfriend shows up, or an old girlfriend shows up, or they'll find some guy, some gal here, you know, and we try to tell you, you know what, just take it easy. Oh, no, i got to get married. i got to find this guy. He's my dream boat. No, he's not a dream boat. He's the... He's a sunken ship in the Spanish Armada. You just leave it to go. <laughs> and you know what happens? You lose them all the time. You know why? Because God can't compete with that. You're not spiritual enough yet to see God who is invisible and build a relationship versus somebody that's tangible and right here. So you fall every time. That's what happened here. Adam come home that day and Eve, who was the, the love of his life, he walked in there and he says, what happened to you, honey? And she's told him. She says, well, you know, the... This guy in a glittery suit showed up and, did you eat of that tree over there that we're told not to? Yeah, yeah, I did. Well, there's some on the table. Yeah, I, I brought some for you. Now he had a decision to make, see? And you know, and that's what the world will do. You'll get separated from the world and the world will look at you and say, I brought some home tonight. Say, have a little of this. And he had to stand right there knowing all that God had done for him. And then he looked at her, that she disobeyed God, and now she's dead and trespasses of sin. She looked at her, he looked at God, he looked at her, he looked at God. He counted the cost, and then he left God, partook of the fruit, and died with her. And from this day forward, that's why every woman wants a man who's willing to die for her. Counting the cost. It's going to cost you something. And you'll stand there just like Adam did, and you'll look at the world, and you'll look at God, you'll look at the world, you'll look at God, you'll see what the world has for you, you'll see what God has for you, and you'll have to count the cost. And when you make your decision for the world, you're going to find out in a short time that all that glitters is not gold. And you're going to realize the best decision you'll ever make in your life with the count the cost, look at the world, leave the world, and take the Lord. Eve was dead. Adam was still alive. He chose to die with her and to end God's purpose in his life. He wasn't willing to pay the price of leaving her and going with God. And Adam leaves, loses God's purpose. He loses God's calling. And in your sacrifice for God, the living one, you'll want to know this. You'll have, to say, you'll have to make some really hard choices. It wasn't easy for him to go to the cross. You ought to spend some time looking at the Garden of Gethsemane where he goes back and forth in his human spirit from the godly spirit, praying that, that God would take this from him, that he wouldn't have to do that. You ought to see him go through that. He struggled just like you do. The Bible says he was tempted on all points like we are, yet without sin. He went through every temptation and struggle that you and I will ever face. You'll have to make some hard choices. There will be a time in your life when serving God will cause you to lose some things. But you'll never ever be what God wants you to be. You'll never fulfill His calling or His purpose till you are ready to count the cost and then pay it. 
realizing that he became your sacrifice on the cross, that you've become the living sacrifice. He never asked you to die for him. Now, some people wind up being martyred and they die. I understand that. But the mandate from God wasn't for us to die for him. The mandate for God is he became the dying sacrifice, we become the living sacrifice. We finish what he started by becoming the sacrifice, understanding his in our life for him. Honestly, folks, it's a lot easier to die for the Lord than it is to live for him. But that's where we're at. Greatest two chapters in the Bible that define sacrifice. Greatest two chapters in the Bible that define sacrifice and what they are. And how to do, to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. A sacrifice will cost you something. And it's only a sacrifice if it's based on your obedience to the Word of God. Courage to obey the Word of God. Courage to rest in the Word of God. Courage to believe the Word of God. Let's end right there. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Help us today to count the cost. Help us to realize, all of us, we're all in the same mess. We're all in the same boat. There wasn't a message to anybody but me today. We are all in the same boat when it comes to not giving God everything in our lives because we want to just give the very minimum to Him, what's left over of our lives, and keep the very best for ourselves. Help us, Lord, and all that we endeavor to do to count the cost and make those hard choices in our families, with our kids, in our marriages, in our relationships, and everything that we have to do. Don't let it be me first, but let it be God first. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. We'll see you here in a little bit.